Well, I don't normally do this, um, but we had a problem accessing the podcast server in class today. And because it was the Monday after spring break, I expect that many people missed class. I wanted to at least provide a podcast of the lecture so that you would have access to all the information that we discussed in class and that might not show up in the notes. So this is me in my office. It's 3 in the afternoon on Monday the 19th and I'm going to try to recapitulate the main points of the lecture for you so that you will have access to everything. Um, there was a welcome back slide. I think that this this coming back to school after a break always requires a huge adjustment and we always feel like we could use some more time. Uh, but I want to remind you that your Field Notebook 3 is due on Friday, this Friday the 23rd, and that it, it needs to contain two files. One is your actual Field Notebook 3 saved as a PDF, and the other is your article about basic constituent order. Hopefully this is the article you found and submitted for your homework 3. Um, if you got feedback from your section instructor that the article you submitted for, with homework 3 wasn't appropriate, then you need to find a new one. Otherwise, you should be able to go ahead and submit that article to the Field Notebook 3 Dropbox anytime. The Dropbox is open and ready for you, so I'd encourage you to go ahead and submit that early if you can. Um, I, I also mentioned to students in class that at the at our class on March the 7th, the Wednesday before break, my supervisor came to observe my class to make sure that I was teaching things correctly and um, to let me know if I was doing anything wrong. And one of the things he noticed was that um, he was keeping track of the number of students who were responding to the polls. You know how our little um, classroom clicker thing, when a, a poll is going, it tells you how many responses you've received. Um, he compared that number to an, the number of actual students in the room, and he found that the number of students in the room was less than the number of students answering the poll, which meant that at least some students were um, cheating, were bringing in uh, maybe a friend's clicker and responding on two devices so that the person who was absent from class was going to get credit for being there even though they were absent. And I wanted to let you guys know that he notified me of this. It's not something I ever thought of doing, doing a head count and comparing it to the, the count on the poll. But since he noticed this, I believe him. And I want you guys to be very aware that we are going to be monitoring closely uh, to see if we can, if we find out someone's using multiple devices in class, um, that's cheating. That's a violation of the Code of Academic Integrity. And in my opinion, it's a really serious and really horribly dumb violation of the code when you think about the fact that each lecture participation is worth four points towards your total of a thousand points at the end of the semester, and every student can drop five lecture participation scores from their final grade calculation, um, really being there, getting those extra four points is not going to make a huge difference for you. But being caught cheating means you failed a class. And in the case of this kind of cheating, 
It's a kind of cheating that involves two people. One is the person who's not in class, who lent their clicker to a friend so that they could still accumulate points. The other is the friend who used it. And both of you guys will fail my class if I catch you doing this. We're going to be on the lookout for it. Please, please, please don't do it. It's so not worth it. If a friend asks you to come, you know, bring their clicker and click in for them in a class, please tell them that you are too good a friend to them to do such a thing. Because if they do that and we catch them, you will fail the class. I will fail both students faster than you can snap your fingers. It is, it, I just find it to be so offensively silly that you would, that, that anybody would cheat over four points. I mean, for crying in the beer, that's just silly. So please don't do it. Um, and I, you know, I'm a trusting person by nature, so it's not a thing that I anticipated anybody would do. I don't understand why anybody would do it, and I, I'm not particularly on guard for it, because who would do that? That's crazy. You're good people. You have integrity, right? So have integrity, please. And if we find that you don't, we will take the appropriate options. All right. That was the shouting at people based on the calendar. I also wanted to let the class know that I did before spring, spring break. I think that I was able to update extra credit scores in D2L. However, some of you may have participated in extra credit and you don't yet have the score um, recorded in D2L. And if that describes your situation, I hope you'll notify me of that so I can go find the record of your participation. It doesn't mean that you're not going to get credit. It just means that your credit wasn't yet recorded in the system, and so I'm going to need to do some extra tracking down in order to make sure your credit gets where it needs to be um, before the end of the term. So please let me know if you're missing any extra credit scores. And also, be aware that there are more extra credit availabilities um, coming up all the time. In particular, there's a study that I know has just opened a number of new seats. Um, it's a study called English Words. So if you haven't uh, already participated in that one, now would be a good time to go find a slot that fits into your schedule and participate in that experiment. Remember, for experiments, you just go to the Linguistics Department homepage, which you can get to from our D2L content area. And then on the Linguistics Department homepage, there's a button that says participate in experiments, exclamation point. That's the one you click through on. Um, you can also choose to do surveys of the Bischoff and Fountain chapters. If you want to do that, they're worth five points each. You can do up to two. You just need to send me an email that says which chapter or chapters you'd like to review, and I'll get you set up for that. Um, I looked at the grades that had been submitted so far and what we have left this semester and I just wanted to make sure everybody was aware of how they can tell you know how they're doing and what they need to focus on for the rest of the term in order to get to the grade that they wanted. Um, you'll notice that we have in terms of the work you have so far completed you have completed 494 points worth of assignments. Not all of those points are necessarily in the gradebook right now because not all the homework three grades have been recorded. Um, but you have 
submitted homework three. So that's done. And the 494 was the total possible points had you been perfect at every single thing you've done so far. You would, you would have a point total of 494. Um, there are 551 more points officially available in the class. Now this does not count extra credit. So extra credit points are over and above the 551. But this is how the additional extra credit points break down. Um, and you'll notice that if you add 551, the number of points still available, to 494, the number of points so far assigned, um, that that adds to more than 1,000 points. And that's because there are um, places where you may have missed points so far, but it's okay because we drop lowest scores, so those missed points won't count against you. So for example, your five lowest lecture participation scores will be dropped from final grade calculations, and one of your reading quiz scores will be dropped from final grade calculations. So whichever one's the lowest. So you um, you actually have access to a total greater than 1,000. If we add in all possible extra credit, there's really 581 more points possible this term if, uh, if you haven't yet done extra credit. And so there's, there's lots of room still left to go. I mean, you've done a lot of work. A lot of your grade is in the gradebook but you've got lots of room to fix things if maybe in the first half of the term things weren't going quite your way. There's really lots of time uh, to recover that and hopefully earn the grade that you are, are wanting to earn in the class. We went through our little review of things that we covered before the break. Um, we talked about modifying words, which you will recall include the adjectives and the adverbs. And we said that in your field notebook three, you should have at least one modifier. It can be either an adjective or an adverb. You remember we talked about what sentences were. We talked about the fact that a sentence minimally should contain both a subject and a predicate, so two parts. In this example sentence on this slide, Leia's uh, Jules poses, that sentence contains two parts. It contains a subject. The subject is whoever's posing, or the string of words that represent that, uh, that subject. So the subject of the sentence is Leia's Jules. And the predicate of the sentence is just the verb poses. Um, and there's nothing else in the sentence besides the subject and the predicate. And so that makes it a simple sentence. It doesn't have any particular modifying words, although you could say that the existence of this possessive construction inside the sentence makes it not as simple as it could be. A simpler sentence would just say, Jules poses. You have one word that's for the subject and one word that's for the predicate. So what does it mean to be a subject? Well, the subject of a sentence, remember, is going to be the string of words in that sentence that tells you who the predicate is talking about. So the subject is always a noun phrase. In this case, the subject is the noun phrase Leia's jewels. 
How do I know that that's the subject of the sentence? Well, it's because I know that that's who is doing the posing. Some sentences also have objects in them. When an object exists in a sentence, it's going to be, the object is going to be part of the predicate. So you still have the subject and the predicate in a simple intransitive sentence, such as this one, Leia's jewels poses. In that sentence, there's no object. That's why we call it an intransitive sentence. But if I change the sentence slightly to say, Leia's jewels ate the mouse. Now I've got a sentence that has an object in it. The object, the mouse, is the thing being eaten. So an object is usually a noun phrase. It's the noun phrase that's receiving the action of the verb. And if a sentence has an object in it, that means it's a transitive sentence. So we have these two terms, a simple intransitive sentence, a simple transitive sentence. Remember what I mean by those. Those are sentences that are intransitive, no object, or transitive, have an object, but they're also simple. That means they don't have other stuff in there besides the subject and the predicate. And the subject and the predicate should be simple. They should have few words, no modifiers, maybe maybe a determiner in there, maybe not even that. So I'm going to encourage you again, when you're making up your simple sentences for Field Notebook 3, to in fact keep them quite simple. You want to use as few words as you possibly can. And remember that simple intransitive sentences, such as Jules poses, or simple transitive sentences, such as Jules ate the mouse, those sentences are not the kinds of sentences we generally say in conversation. Usually, when we're talking to each other, we make up really complicated sentences that have lots of stuff in them. And, and so when you're inventing your sentences for Field Notebook 3, I encourage you to keep them very simple. And don't worry that they're maybe not the most natural sentences that you think people would say. They're things that we can say that are as simple as possible. And we need those very simple sentences to be able to detect the basic constituent order of a language. So the basic constituent order is going to be the typical order in which the subject, the verb, and then the object of the verb in a simple transitive sentence occur. So you will recall that in English we had this example sentence, the, the cub hugs his friend. I would argue that that's a simple transitive sentence. It's got a subject, this cub, and it's got a predicate, hugs his friend. The predicate contains a transitive verb, hugs. And you'll notice that the predicate here, which is this bit, the predicate is labeled as a verb phrase. So most of the time predicates are verb phrases. All of the time subjects are noun phrases. So our subject is this cub, our predicate is hugs his friend, and within the predicate we have the verb first, hugs. And then we have his friend, the object, that's the, the 
thing that's receiving the hug is his friend. That comes after the verb. So in terms of basic constituent order for English, we have subject followed by verb, so followed by object, or SVO. Now, SVO is a perfectly good basic constituent order. It is the basic constituent order for English, and it may well be the basic constituent order of your field language. But it doesn't have to be the basic constituent order of your field language. In fact, languages differ in the order in which these three constituents, these three basic pieces, tend to appear. So we looked in class at this sentence, which is not a sentence of English. And I've given you the sentence in the three-line trans transcription, the interlinear glossing, so that you could see sort of why the interlinear glossing um, is so important. Ooh, and I noticed an error in here. There should not be a hyphen between these two things. I should probably fix that, huh? Because, see, there's no hyphen here to indicate that there should be a morpheme boundary, and in fact, that's not a morpheme boundary necessarily. So ignore the little hyphen right here. Yikes. That's, that makes my field notebook three not an A field notebook three. In any case, what I wanted students to be able to do is look at this three-line transcription from a language that I know you're not familiar with and be able to tell me what's the basic constituent order in this language. If this is a simple transitive sentence, what's the basic constituent order? And the way to figure that out is not to look at line one, because line one probably doesn't mean anything to you. This is just the phonetic transcription of the sentence in the language. And not to look necessarily at line three either, because line three is just how you would say the same sentence if it were English. So in line three, we have the English sentence, which goes in an SVO word order. But this language doesn't have SVO word order. And the way you can tell that is by looking at line two. So what you want to do is find the verb by looking in line two. And what you should be able to see as you scan through line two is that the verb is going to be the word that means hug. And this is the word that means, it actually, this word actually means he, she, or it hugs he, she, or it. So it's got a third person singular subject and a third person singular object and it's got the verb stem, and it's also inflected for tense. So do you notice that the verb is at the end of the sentence? That's a good observation. That means that this is probably a verb final language. And then if we want to answer the question, what's its basic constituent order, we need to figure out, okay, the verb is last. What order do the subject and object go in? So we're looking for the subject, the words that mean this cub, and I think we find them here, um, and they're first. So we, I think that based on this sentence, we can say that this language is a subject-object-verb language, 
or SOV. And I will tell you that of the languages that have fixed word orders, um, SOV is the most commonly found basic constituent order in languages of the world. So the, the most common way to organize your subject, object, and verb is to put the verb last, the subject first, and the object in the middle. The basic constituent order that English has is the second most common constituent order that we find in fixed word order languages. But if you've done your readings, and I hope you have, you will know that there are also lots of languages that do not necessarily have a fixed word order. They have instead what we call a flexible word order. So if you've read anything about Japanese or if you've learned anything about Latin, for example, you'll know that there are some languages in which you can actually put the constituents in lots of different orders. There's not necessarily a basic one. So your field language might be a flexible word order language, or it might be a fixed word order language. And if it's a fixed word order language, then you can pick any possible order of S, O, and V and use the one that you like. But you're going to want to make sure that when you do that, you put the words in your language in the order that you say your language has. And I hope that's clear. I, I hope that that makes sense to you. Okay. We had discussed before today the kinds of words that are crossed out on this slide. So I don't think I need to say anything more about those. But I did want to say a little bit more about the, uh, the two additional required kinds of words, the add positions and the determiners or quantifiers. So what do I mean by an add position? Well, the word toward in the sentence, the kitten jumped toward the camera, is an example of an add position. What do add positions do? Well, they're a kind of function word. And they're a kind of function word that is used to relate some noun phrase, like the noun phrase, the camera to whatever else is going on in the sentence, or to something else in the sentence. So if we think about this sentence, the kitten jumped towards the camera, we should notice that that is not a simple intransitive sentence, and it is also not a transitive sentence. It is a sentence in which the subject is the kitten, and the predicate is jumped toward the camera, but the predicate doesn't contain the verb jumped and an object of jumped. If it did, what that would have to mean is something like the kitten jumped the camera. That is, if the kitten caused the camera to jump or the kitten jumped onto the camera or something like that. Um, instead, this is an intransitive sentence, the kitten jumped that contains a modifier. The modifier is the whole phrase toward the camera that's telling us where, how the jumping happened, right? So adpositional elements, like the word toward, or the word under, in the dog is under the table, or the word for, in the, word, in this, in the phrase the student studied for the exam, or 
the word of in the sentence, the instructor was afraid of the rattlesnake. Those words are really, they're really just introducing a new noun phrase into the sentence that modifies something else in the sentence. So um, these words, adpositions, have this function of relating some noun phrase to something else in the sentence. And these words, under, for, of, towards, I'm sure you can think of more of them, um, to, above, from, there's, there's a lot of them. You're probably used to calling them prepositions. And in fact, English uses prepositions. Prepositions are one variety of adposition. In English, we call these guys prepositions because they occur before, that is pre, the noun phrase that they're introducing into the sentence. So we say things like, the kitten jumped toward the camera. We do not say something like, the kitten jumped the camera toward. If we did say something like that, we would have a postpositional language. So there are two kinds of adpositions. Prepositions, those come before a noun phrase, and postpositions, those come after a noun phrase. English only has prepositions. Many languages only have postpositions. Japanese, for example, has postpositions. Navajo has postpositions. But English has prepositions. If we spoke a language that had postpositions, then we would say, instead of saying the dog is under the table, we would say the dog is the table under, or the student studied the exam for, or the instructor was afraid the rattlesnake of. Lots of languages use postpositions. Your language, your field language, can use prepositions, like English, or it can use postpositions, like Japanese. Pick one, pick whichever kind you like and use it. Most languages pick one or the other. So I'd encourage you to, to pick one, either preposition or postposition for your language. All right, and we also wanted to have your language include some, some little function words that can work as what we've called determiners. Um, and I'm going to say that the things that we've called determiners, uh, they're things that also introduce nouns, but they don't really relate the noun to something else. And the determiner will introduce a noun and create a noun phrase. So if we go back to the, um, the prepositions, our adpositions, those guys introduce a whole new noun phrase into the sentence. So we get toward the camera. We don't get toward camera. Well, you can say that, but it's not. Uh, then, then we omit the determiner sometimes in that position. But the preposition is introducing a whole noun phrase, or the postposition, same thing. The determiner is just introducing a noun and making that noun, it's combining with the noun to make a noun phrase. So in this example, some kittens playing with a ball in the ring toy, that's a phrase, and it contains several noun phrases. 
and each noun phrase has a determiner in it. So the words some, a, uh, and the are all determiners. These, these words a uh, and the are in English are typically called articles. And some languages have articles, but not all languages do. Your language might or it might not. That's up to you. But if, if you think about other words that can fit in the same position as the words a uh, and the, we get words like this, this and that, or all, or every, or most, or many, or some, or even numeral words like 17. I can say 17 pandas are cute, right? This, the, the ones that tell you how many are sometimes called quantifiers. Whatever kinds of determiners you want, just pick something. Uh, and use it. All languages have some kinds of determiners. Some languages only use the quantifying kind and they don't have articles. Other languages have articles and also quantifiers and you really only need one word in your field language that's going to function as a determiner. So you can pick whether you want it to be an article or a quantifier. Now some languages actually do stuff to their determiners based on the properties of the noun that, that the determiner is combining with. So we call that inflecting the determiner. Um, let me give you an example of a, a language that inflects determiners. If you speak Spanish, you know that to say the table, you say, I hope I get this right, you say la mesa. But to say the book, you say el libro. So la and el are both determiners. They're in fact both articles in Spanish. But la goes with nouns that have feminine gender. And el goes with nouns that have masculine gender. So we can say that Spanish inflects determiners for gender. Um, other languages that inflect determiners for gender include French and Portuguese and German, and in fact lots of Indo-European languages do that. There are some determiners in English that get inflected for number. For example, the determiner a, which is the indefinite article, also is a singular. Right? So if I say a cat, that means there's one cat. I can't say a cat's napped, meaning indefinite multiple cats napped, right? If I, because the determiner a uh, has to be singular, it has to go with a singular noun. If I make the noun plural, then I have to change my determiner to something else, and I could say some cats napped, or these cats napped, or the cats napped, or all cats napped, or a few cats napped or 17 cats napped, but I can't use a singular determiner with a plural noun. So you can think about how your language is going to handle determiners and see if your language inflects the determiners uh, for things like gender or number. And of course many languages in the world don't have articles at all. Um, so you can decide whether you want your language to have articles or whether you want it only to have quantifying determiners.
And you can decide on the order of the determiner and the noun in your language too. So in English, the determiner precedes the noun in a noun phrase, but in some languages it will follow the noun. And you can have uh, your language do whichever order you wish. So we have some words, and the next step is to think about the inflectional categories and the inflectional processes. That is, how do you make your words carry the right inflectional meanings? Um, now, the reason that I'm intermingling our discussion of inflectional morphology with our discussion of syntax or sentence building is that usually in languages whenever you try to make a sentence you have to inflect the words in the sentence for certain kinds of things. So if we take this sentence for example Teddy Biscuit the dog. Teddy Biscuit is Leia's co-pilot. Um, in order to make that sentence we have to, for example, know that we're talking in the present tense. And where the present tense is inflected is on the to be verb, right? And here's the, the present tense. If this, were, if this sentence were in past tense, we couldn't say Teddy Biscuit is Leia's co-pilot. We'd have to say Teddy Biscuit was Leia's co-pilot. We also have to know, in order to say the whole sentence, that the subject of the sentence, Teddy Biscuit, counts as a third person subject. Um, so we say Teddy Biscuit is Leah's co-pilot. That's the third person subject. Um, if we wanted a second person subject, like you, we would have to say you are Leah's co-pilot. So again, we would change the way we're inflecting the verb based on the person of the subject. And we also have to know how many people there are. So if we wanted to say 17 dogs is Leia's co-pilot, we can't say it that way. We have to say 17 dogs are Leia's co-pilot. So when we start to make sentences, we have to think about these inflectional categories such as tense and person and number. And you learned about those for your homework three. So I hope that this is all starting to connect in a way that makes sense to you. And we also have to remember about our different kinds of morphemes, like our roots and our stems and our affixes, and the different word building strategies or inflectional processes that we discuss in the Bischoff and Fountain manuscript on morphology. So it's a lot to keep in mind. And I would encourage you to keep your Bischoff and Fountain manuscript on morphology and the one on syntax very handy as you're finishing up your field notebook three because those two chapters contain lots of relevant information for you to help you build up your field notebook three. Okay, so syntax and inflection. The inflectional morphology that a language has is going to be the morphology that's required in order for us to make a sentence, just like we said before. Um, and I've given you, for your field notebook three, these inflectional categories, person, number, tense, and case, directionality, evidentiality, and gender or classification to pick from for your field notebook three. And the reason that I've given you these, and I'm listing the first three, not in parentheses, 
These are uh, inflectional categories that lots of languages require speakers to use whenever they build a sentence. English definitely uses person, number, and tense. That's very clearly marked in any sentence of English. Um, case, directionality, evidentiality, and gender or classification are all inflectional categories that English doesn't pay a lot of attention to in terms of its word building rules. But if you speak a language like, or if you've ever studied a language like Latin or Japanese or Russian, you'll know about case. Um, directionality and evidentiality are inflectional categories we'll talk about on Wednesday, and they uh, are found in lots of languages native to the Americas, but they're not necessarily found so often in English or Spanish or Indo-European. And then gender or classification, that's an inflectional category that English doesn't do much with. But if you speak Spanish, French, Portuguese, Italian, uh, Russian, um, uh, any of a number of languages of the world, you know that the nouns in those languages all fall into these different gender classes, which are sometimes called, like in Spanish, the genders are masculine and feminine. Or in German, the genders are masculine, feminine, and neuter. Um, and English used to have a gender system with masculine, feminine, and neuter too. But English has dropped a lot of its gender marking from the grammar. Uh, you also find the languages of the world that have gender classes that aren't called masculine and feminine. Instead, they're called things like animate and inanimate. And you'll find other languages in the world where instead of having just two or three gender categories, like masculine, feminine, neuter, or animate, inanimate, they actually have lots of different classes of nouns. So for example, in the Bantu languages, you may have 13 to 15 different categories of noun. Every noun in the language will belong to one of those categories. And the nouns are assigned to the categories somewhat arbitrarily. So when you learn to speak a language that has gender or classification, that's one of the things every time you learn a new noun, you have to learn what gender or what category, what class it falls into because it's not obvious. There's no obvious reason why in Spanish mesa, table, should be feminine, but libro, book, should be masculine. It's not like tables are girly and books are boy-y. It's just arbitrary classes that we sort our words into. So these are the inflectional categories that you have to choose from, and your rules for Field Notebook 3 are you don't have to use them all. I want you to pick four. And I'd encourage you to pick four from the list um, that you feel most comfortable with. Okay, so if, you're, if you feel really certain that you understand person and number and tense and gender, that's a perfectly good set of categories to use. Um, if you feel like you are really, really clear about what case is and evidentiality, then go for case evidentiality and pick two others that you like. There's no reason. None of these are preferred over any others. And in class, somebody asked the very good question of whether these were uh, in this particular order for any given reason. 
and they're not. It's a random order. I just listed them here in, um, in I think, the same order that I list them in your Field Notebook 3 assignment. So when you think about these categories, let me go back. Category like number. Universally, all languages will inflect for number somehow. But how they do it can differ from language to language. So some very common number categories in languages of the world include the category of singular, which usually means there's one thing, and the category of plural, which in many languages means there, there's more than one. So English is the kind of language in which, in terms of grammatical number, there are two possibilities. A thing is either singular or plural. Singular means one, plural means more than one. But we talked uh, a couple of weeks ago about Navajo, in which the category of singular includes things where there are one or two of them. And plural means more than two. That is, it means three or more. So that's a possibility in your language. You can have a different definition for singular versus plural than we find in English. We also find lots of languages in the world that have a special category where they mark their nouns for a singular, meaning exactly one, and then a dual, meaning exactly two, and plural means three or more. So where you can play around and come up with your own ideas for the categories of number is in these what each of these categories means. But the general concept of grammatical number is the same in every language. That is, the language has a way to indicate how many nouns or how many people are, are in the subject, how many things are being affected in the object. Okay, so this is where we stopped in class today, so this is where I will stop now. I hope this was helpful to you, and I will look forward to seeing you back in class on Wednesday.